Morning, church. It's good to see you guys this morning. Who's excited for Vision Sunday? All right, so um, just to give you guys an idea, let's do a praise before we start talking about where we're going. Let's praise for where we've been, amen? So just this year, since we've opened the building here, we've baptized six souls into the kingdom. Somebody say amen. Amen. It's a big deal. Like I said, we've got three more scheduled for this, or not this Sunday, and at the end of the month. So if you guys are interested and you're ready to take that step of faith, now's a great time to do it. So we're really excited for that. Um, We also had, and this is a huge praise report, we had 25 kids at Vacation Bible School this year for the first time when we did it. That was awesome. So I say all that because you see us fulfilling the the, the Great Commission, right? You see the greatest commission that Christ gave us fulfilled. And that's because of you. Each one of you as part of that story. Each one of you are part of what we're able to do and some of the big impact we've had in people's lives. So <clears throat> let me restart kind of to give you guys an idea of how we got here. In, in 2020, when COVID kind of shut everything down, everybody remembers that? Probably don't try, try not to remember it that much. Kind of <laughs> pretend it didn't happen, right? It's nice to kind of pretend like it didn't happen. But when that happened and shut everything down, you know, Leah and I and the team that we called them the A-team at the time sat down and started to kind of unpack what it would look like if a church wasn't just in a city, but if a church was for a city. Because, I mean, you can pick any church on the road and probably tell me what they're against just by their denominational name, right? You could tell me exactly what they're against, but very few people can actually tell me what a church is for. And when you talk to pastors, most of the time, they will immediately, and I know this because I talk with pastors, they often talk about what they are against, not what they're for, particularly related to their churches. So we said, well, what happens if we can create a church or gathering Jesus followers that would be about something instead of against everything? Instead of being identified by what we're against, let's be identified by what we're for. And that's where we kind of came up with the idea of like, well, what's our vision going to be? Well, Christ said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So we said, that's pretty good. Let's do that. (laughs) Jesus said it. Pretty pretty solid. So we decided that. We adopted that. We said, okay, we're going to be a church that loves God and loves people. And so that still ate away at me. I was like, we're missing something. We're missing something. There's a piece like, yeah, we want to be a group of Jesus followers that loves God, absolutely, and loves the people around us, absolutely, but there's an extra piece that's missing. And then I read where the uh, Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about the church, the ecclesia, the gathering, being salt and light. And I said, okay, well, salt preserves the good things and light leads the way forward in darkness. That's what I want to do. That's what I think the church should do. So that's where we came up with the vision. And then the team got together and we said, we've been meeting in FCS for like four or five years and it's a really long, we're all really tired. What happens if we got this property right? What happens if we actually decide to build on it? Could we do that? Is it possible? So before we had enough people and before we had enough money, we started the building project. Some of you guys go, that's crazy. That's called crazy faith. That's called crazy faith. And we, we were like, oh, man, let's just, let's just do it. Let's sell out. God's going to do something. We think that this city needs a church that loves God, loves people, and is all about making a difference in a city that is for God. That's what we want to do. That's what we're trying to figure out. So we did that. 
And then last year for Vision Sunday, those of you that were here, you remember me talking about the unique location of this property. Before we even had the building up, we didn't even have the foundation poured yet. We talked about how we were right in the Quad County area where we can reach into Stafford, Caroline, Spotsy, and even the city itself and King George on one side. So there's so many different areas we could reach so easily. And this is the great part. They're all within 20 minutes of this location right here. Not to mention all the growth is coming this direction because they don't have anywhere else to go on that side. I call that divine alignment, but <laughs> praise the Lord. That's right. So we see all these things, and it's like, okay, well, what would happen if we can actually get that building up and, and get the group of Jesus followers there? What, what, what would happen? What would happen if the church came out here and actually started to make a difference out at this location? And here we are, a year later, in the building, We've been doing this thing here, and for those of you that were part of the setup and teardown team, you are extremely happy that we haven't had to do setup and teardown and curtains and, and all the other things that we did. Um, in fact, let's give a shout out to what once was the setup team that helped get us here. In Stacy was the leader of that, and she did a phenomenal job through all the years of that mobile setup and teardown. But now, we're, God has moved us out of that season into this season. So the question is, what's next? What happens next? Why even do... Here's a question I've, I've gotten from time to time is, Brandon, why are we even going to do a Vision Sunday? I've got an excellent illustration to get to tell you why vision is so important. It's so important. So as you know, we have, a, uh, we, have, we have three kids. We have a nine, we have a seven, and then we have a four-year-old who's, going, who's five tomorrow. Five tomorrow. Zeke is five tomorrow. Um, so Zeke, uh, he, sometimes he's not fully awake when he has to go to the bathroom at night. So sometimes, you know, the baby monitor, we still keep the baby monitor in his room, and it'll go off, and then my wife and I will tag in, tag out, and somebody will go help him get into the bathroom. Because if not, he's going to get up, but he's probably going to pee on his bedpost. So we kind of got to wake him up and get him in the bedroom. It's funny until you got to clean it. Um, but we, we wake him, you know, we, and we do that. So a couple days ago, it happened. It was Leah's turn to get up with him. So Leah gets up with him. And, and you may not know this, but she actually needs glasses really badly. Like, I mean, if she doesn't have her contacts in, she reads her books like this. Like, it's not an exaggeration. I would not tell a lie from the pulpit. Come on, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do it, period, but really not up here. Anyway, so she's got bad eyesight. And um, so our house is split level. So you got to come out of the bedroom. You got to turn left. You got to go up the stairs, right? And the stairs got a little landing. You got to go up into the hallway and get over to the kids' room. So it's a little bit of a trek to get there. And so she needs her glasses for that because it's best for everybody. And uh, so the other day, instead of grabbing her glasses that were on her nightstand, she grabbed her sunglasses that were on her nightstand. <laughs> and see, there's a time limit running because he'll pee anywhere, anytime, anywhere. So it's like it, he starts crying, the clock goes off, and it's a race. So she's like, oh, gosh, and then puts them on. Go, and this is the best part. She said, huh, this is weird. And then she comes out of the bedroom. She says she didn't even notice it until she looked up the stairs. And then you see our front door, and she thought she was blacking out. <laughs> At which point she realized what was happening and then finally makes it up there. Nobody peed on the floor. I don't think he peed on the floor. He didn't make it. She made it. She made it. Everything was good. That is why vision is important. 
It's so very important. <laughs> it's so important because it shows you where you're going. And we could sit here and talk about where we've been, and that's amazing, but we don't want to just talk about where we've been. We want to talk about where God's calling us to in the future. And now I'm going to cast some big vision today, so you got to hang with me. And if you got, and in fact, you got to put your dreaming hat on, okay? If you're in here and you're thinking really small, I want you to think really big, because we're done thinking small, because our God is not small. Somebody say amen. amen. So we're going to think big in here. So if you're ready, say, I'm ready. All right, as we get started, two staggering pieces of information that's going to drive this entire thing, and two staggering pieces of information that drove me years ago. And that is that 77% of people report no interest in exploring religion in their lives. 77%, if they aren't actively involved in religion, 77% say they are not interested in pursuing religion at all. Christianity not at all. Not interested at all. And then here's another staggering thing that really just broke my heart. 72% of Gen Z, 72% of Gen Z who don't currently go to church right now, they doubt the existence of God. They doubt the existence of God. The problem for many people, the reality is the problem is not that there's not spirituality in the world. The, the America is becoming more and more spiritual. Like, for there was a time when the new atheist movement was moving, and everybody kind of checked all their faith at the door, and then all of a sudden science started saying, well, hold on a second, there might be an intelligent designer, and, and there might be something else happening here. So then spirituality kind of made a resurgence, and spirituality's made a resurgence, and culture, if you haven't noticed, operates like a pendulum. It goes real hard in one direction, real hard in the other. So spirituality is actually on the rise, but yet Christianity is on the decline. How does that happen? Why does that happen? What do we do? Well, um, if, we're, if we're honest, it's because many people believe the church is irrelevant today. And if we're, if, if we're being honest, for some of us, we've experienced that thought too. The church is just kind of irrelevant. It's a Sunday morning only thing. I come in here, you know, they play the really good music, and I get hoopy and hollery and waving my hands, and I'm ready, and I'm good. And then after we leave here, my faith kind of stays in my seat, and I don't take it with me. Because it becomes irrelevant, it becomes a Sunday-only thing. And here's the tragic thing, that the church is not irrelevant, or maybe the church is irrelevant to culture today, but the message of Jesus is not irrelevant. It can't be irrelevant. The message of Jesus is what sets people free. The message of Jesus is what breaks chains. So the message of Jesus is not irrelevant, but yet culture sees the church, the vehicle of the message, is irrelevant. So how do we navigate that? And then the real question is, is the church washed up? Is it actually irrelevant? Is what people think about it true? I sure hope not. And I would argue no. I would argue that it's not washed up. I would argue that it's not irrelevant. I would simply argue that like a football game, we are simply running the same play over and over and over again and then confused why we don't gain any yards. So there's an excellent story that illustrates what I believe the vision is going to be for the future here. And it, it illustrates perfectly how we can recapture relevance in the world today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to start right in the beginning. So I'll give you a couple seconds to get there because I get yelled at every time I check with everybody and they're like, you move too fast. 
Don't move as fast. You got a second. Grab your Bible. Bust it out. And if you're there, say word. All right. Somebody on that side is ready. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. This is John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, Jesus doesn't confront the Pharisees at this point in time, because every other time you see Jesus, he's going toe-toe with them Pharisees, right? He's messing with them. He ain't afraid of them. But this time, this is early in his ministry. So he doesn't feel like arguing, and to be quite honest, it, would, it wouldn't serve the purpose yet, because he's in Jerusalem, and he's not, he can't be crucified yet, because the time had not yet come. So he is leaving Jerusalem, not interfering with the Pharisees, because he's moving on to the next thing preparing and finishing his earthly ministry. So we're early in his ministry, and instead of fighting, he's going back to the area, the Sea of Galilee, where he can travel around, tell people about the message and kingdom of God, and then when the time comes, he'll go back to Jerusalem, then he'll stir the pot and start some problems, okay? And then verse 4 says, now he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. And if you look on a map, right, if you look on a map, you'll find that it doesn't look like he had to go through Samaria. In fact, on the map, and I've got a, I got a map that you guys can see, um, it doesn't look like he needs to go through Samaria. Because see the big water spot up there? Water spot. The sea? <laughs> what am I? A five-year-old? The water? You guys see the water? Okay, that's the Sea of Galilee. That's the Sea of Galilee. That's the Jordan River traveling down. You can see Jerusalem at the very bottom. Sakar is right up there, and then Galilee's up by the water spot. And what they would do is the reason why the text says, and John includes, that he had to go through Samaria was because in this particular culture, they would go around Samaria. So they would cross the Jordan River, and on this side of the mountains over there is a desert, and they would, the Jews would travel through the desert to go around Samaria. They went around Samaria because it was dangerous to go through Samaria. They would avoid it if they could at all costs. They would try to avoid it specifically because the Samaritans and the Jews had racial tensions, they had religious tension, they had cultural and societal tension, and there were some real problems. In fact, if you were a Jew traveling through Samaria, you had to be concerned that a Samaritan or a group of Samaritans would take you and detain you and then give you back to your, hold you for a ransom for your family to come and and get you. So a lot of Jews avoided the area of Samaria. And you could see it's obviously standing right in the middle of Jesus going back to the Sea of Galilee. But instead of going around, which would have been the custom, he doesn't do that. He goes through, which is why John includes in his gospel, he had to go through Samaria. Verse 5 says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Keep that time in mind. It was around noon. Okay? So Jacob's well, Jacob's well, this is a physical location you can still go see today. What's really interesting is in the life of Jesus, we see all of the, we hear of all these different moments that Jesus has these profound teachings and profound healings. And a lot of times we know general areas that those are. 
We don't know the exact location of them, like we know the Pool of Bethesda and some places like that, but we may not know the exact location of some of those things. It's like we know generally, but then kind of history and destroys, you guys know what I'm talking about, kind of destroys, and then they find it archaeologically. But this well is still there today. In fact, you can go see it today. Not only that, this well still produces cold water and can still be used. Now, people do what people do, and they built a church on it. And so you can't get to it quite as easily, and it's in Palestine. But it's still open to tourism. And it's the well that Jacob, Israel, purchased for his family. And it's part of the land that he purchased for his family and then passed it on to Joseph, and then it continues down the line. And it's preserved all the way to today. So, Jesus at the well, minding his own business. It's hot. It's noon. His disciples have gone into town to get food, and he's sitting by the well. Verse 7 tells us, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, remember I said keep the time in, in the back of your mind that it was at noon. Because it would have been abnormal for anybody to come to the well in the middle of the day. Jesus stopping at the well makes sense because he was thirsty and he was tired and his disciples were going to go into the town and Jesus is not going into the town. So him stopping by the well makes sense in the middle of the day. Somebody who is in the town of Sakaar, a Samaritan woman, going to the well in the middle of the day was very abnormal. In fact, it was totally confusing to have it happen. The well was actually a community spot back in those days. It wasn't just a spot that where they got water. They did get water there, but it was also a spot where they were part, of, it was a part of the community. It was like a hangout area. People would go and the ladies in the morning and in the evening, they would go to the well, they would draw the water because how many of you been on that area of the world? It gets hot in the middle of the day, okay? It gets hot. So they would go draw water in the morning and they would draw water in the evening. They didn't go in the middle of the day because it's like 120 degrees. Ain't nobody want that smoke, okay? So they're going in the morning or in the evening. But yet this woman comes in the middle of the day. And when they would gather together in those places morning and evening, it became a social gathering place. They would exchange stories. Oh, did you hear about Betty? She's hanging out with Mark. You know, that kind of thing. That's what it was. And the ladies would gather, and it would become part of the way that the culture would connect and the families would connect. It would be like a meeting place often because they would, one well, one bucket. Like, you're standing there waiting while Susie's pulling the water up. How you doing? You know? So that is, is part of everyday life. It's part of everyday life. It's just part of it. And so Jesus, sitting by the well, and the Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. So you know, obviously, there's, there's uh, differences in the way they look. And I am a Samaritan woman. Notice she didn't say Samaritan. She said Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So what's the big deal with Samaria? We hear this all the time. Why is there such cultural tension? And then Jesus, what's so interesting is Jesus would often leverage that cultural and societal tension to demonstrate why he had come into the world. And it's so powerful. And this is the first instance that we see it where he's using what would be a religious, racial, and cultural and societal tension to explain and leverage what he was coming to do and what the kingdom of God was going to look like. 
So the Jews and Samaritans couldn't stand each other. They had a lot of problems with each other. And originally they came from the same people group. But then the Assyrians conquered the area of Samaria way back in the day when Israel split into two nations. The Assyrians conquered that section, which would become Samaria. They conquered it, and then they shipped off all the Jews at the time to different areas of their kingdom, which caused them to lose their pure-blood Israelite lineage. Then they intermixed pagan worship associated with their gods, and that was a problem, as we all know. And so this was a huge, huge issue. And then they come back together, and the Samaritans, they decided, well, you know what? We don't accept anything in the Scriptures except the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. They only accept Genesis, Exodus, the law, that's it. They didn't accept anything else. They didn't accept anything else. They didn't accept the prophets or anything like that because there was so much emphasis on the line of David and particularly on the location of Jerusalem. Does anybody else know what was in Jerusalem? Starts with a T. Temple. Does anybody remember what was in the temple for a while? The Ark of the Covenant, which was, had the mercy seat of God. So now the Samaritans sit there and say, no, 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 we're not interested. That's not where you worship. And God was very clear in the Old Testament. That was where you worshiped. So now there's religious tension. They're, in their mind, they're heretics. There's all sorts of problems. They, they set up their own fake temple in Samaria, and it was just a huge, huge, huge problem. And culturally, there's no way that Jesus would speak to a Samaritan woman. I mean, a Samaritan nonetheless, but a, a woman, he certainly is going to speak to a Samaritan woman at all. And then Jesus answered her because she's like, no, why would I give, come on, why are you talking to me? And Jesus, instead of going all out, he just says, if you knew the gift God, the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Meaning if you could see and understand who is speaking to you, you would change your viewpoint on it. You would change your viewpoint on it. Now, a lot of us sit back, we get a little self-righteous, like, how did she miss it? Come on, you do it too. Jesus says something, and you're like, that wasn't you, was it? That wasn't God. That was the chili. It's not God. That's not how it's done. You've done the same thing. You've missed the words of Jesus that were set right in front of you. So let's be gentle on the woman. Let's not have a, let's not have a bunch of judgment. Sir, she said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? So she's still thinking physical. In her mind, she probably went to Jesus knows where a spring is. She hasn't made the transition to the supernatural yet. She's still operating in the physical, thinking Jesus has some location where there's more fresh water. So she says, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock, to which Jesus is thinking, girl, you ain't got no idea. You think, I, you think that's cool? I'm about to show you cool, right? And then she sees only the immediate. And Jesus answered. And again, it's confusing for her, but it's significant for us as followers of Christ. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water, temporary water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give will never thirst. Indeed, he continues, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then the woman said, oh, okay, I think we've made a transition here, Rabbi. I don't fully understand where you're going. She says, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I imagine at this point Jesus goes, oh, man, still thinking it's real water, huh? 
still, still, still not there, and that's okay. So he sits down, and he says, um, okay. So she asks, where is it? And he says, okay, you want to know where it is? Um, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you where it is. But first, go get your husband and come back. And he says the most offensive thing. That, I mean, come on, he's the Christ. So he knew that she had no husband. He knew that. But he says, go get your husband to, like, jar her and make her recognize, I'm not talking about physical water anymore. I'm talking about something different. And so she leans in, and right then she goes, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right to say you have no husband. The fact is, and this is the part where he just blows her mind. He says, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband's. What you said, he continues, is quite true. Two options here. This woman was either promiscuous or she had been discarded by her husbands multiple times. It's possible that she had been discarded by her husbands because in that culture it was very easy. Women were looked as property. And Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman automatically elevates women. And then when you see Jesus throughout his ministry, he is consistently elevating women above the cultural norm. And it, but particularly in this moment, he points back and says, where's your husband? She says, I don't have one. There's a really good chance that time and time again, because husbands could easily divorce their wives. There wasn't the 50-50 rule or the no-fault state then. It was, nope, I'm tired of her. I'm going to divorce her, and I'm going to move on to somebody else. I'm going to divorce her, and then I'm going to move on to somebody else. That was very common in that culture. In fact, that's why Jesus actually argues about not getting divorced very easily is because it was, it was common to do that. And what happened is, is because women couldn't read and write, most of them, and they didn't, couldn't own property and have businesses, that they were relying upon their husbands for money. And so Jesus kind of draws her in to realize, wait a second, where's your husband? And then she recognizes, wait a second, how could he know that? How could this Jew know that? How on earth could he know? Because that was part of her dysfunction, and all of a sudden we see why she came at noon. I mean, if it's a gathering place where everybody goes, and it's constantly interacting with everybody in the village, and you've been discarded by your husband over five times, and you're staying with somebody who's not your husband now, are you going to want to go to the well and hang out with all the other ladies and hear them talk about how good their husbands are and how great things are going at home? She's not interested in that. She's not interested in that at all. She's dealing with shame and her dysfunction and what, the, what her past has caused her and the issues that she's experienced. So she's struggling with this, and she says, I'm not going to the well at the times everybody else is. I'll go at noon. Nobody will be there. Nobody will be there. It's exactly why she didn't go in the evening. She wasn't interested in the perfect housewives of Samaria. She wasn't interested at all. <laughs> and so Jesus uses this as an opportunity to point something out to her. Not just about herself, but less about herself and more about who he was. Because this Jew could not have known her past, her dysfunction, what she's been through, and the pain she's currently experiencing without being something more than just a rabbi. And all of a sudden, she starts to figure it out. She begins to make the full circle. She says, Jesus, I know you're a prophet. 
I know you're a prophet. She starts to figure it out to a degree. She says, you know, you Jews say that you worship in Jerusalem, but I know one day that the Christ is coming. She hasn't made the full circle yet. I know one day, she says, that the Christ is coming. And when the Christ comes, he'll make it all clear. It's real muddy right now, but when the Messiah comes, the king, when he comes, hey, he'll make it all, all clear. And then Jesus kind of has some conversation back and forth with her. And then Jesus declared, he says to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the king that you're talking about. I am the Messiah, Jesus said, that you're talking about. And now here's, this is so amazing because this translation actually leaves a huge part out that I'm, I just wish they didn't. It's easy for readability. But in the Greek, it's one word. This phrase, I am he, is one word. Just one word, and it's the word ami, ami. I thought about putting in a funny joke about it's ami, a Mario, but I don't need to do that, so you guys can do that on your own. But the Greek word ami, the Greek word ami actually just translates directly to I am. There is no pronoun in the Greek. The Greek that's written in that, there is no pronoun. Now, can anybody else, we're Bible nerds in the room, can anybody else remind me of somebody that we've read about once before that said, I am? Anybody remember that? Anybody know that person? It's in Exodus. And it was God. It was God. When Moses sat down and said, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? When he's talking to the Israelites. And God says, you just tell them, I am sent you. You just tell them, I am sent you. And here Jesus is leaning in and talking to this woman at the well who's been discarded by society, been discarded by culture, on her own, living with her own shame and dysfunction. And Jesus looks at her and he reveals for the first time that we're aware outside of his family, his kingship, his messiahness to a Samaritan woman. And he does it by pointing back to the Old Testament, saying, I am. So the right way this reads, Jesus declared, which is very similar to what the Lord declared in Exodus, says, I, the one speaking to you, this is all it says, I am. I am. That's all it says. Jesus declaring himself again, putting himself on par with God. Right here in this moment, he reveals himself to her. And she is blown away. She picks it up. Because remember, the first five books of the Old Testament, they believe in. So when he says, I am, she's like, whoa, somebody else said that. And then the text tells us, leaving her water jar. So the whole reason she came, she's got to run and she just leaves it. She just leaves it right then because it's like the light goes off. Got it. Wait a second. I am. God said that. Are you the king? Are you the one? So she leaves her water jar and runs back. And the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and they made their way towards Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is exhausted. He's been walking a long way. It's noon, right? And then everybody begins to come out of the city. And everybody comes out of the city to see Jesus. She needs to tell people. There's a sense in which she leaves her water jar behind. There's an urgency. I've got to tell people about this guy that I met, and he's the God, he's the Messiah. I just can't keep it in. I've got to share it after this small conversation she had with him. 
And the text tells us many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, remember Samaritans, unclean, dirty in that culture. Don't associate, don't touch. Ew, 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 no, not them. Uh, Certainly not them. Samaritans came to believe, came to believe. They came to him, and they even urged him to stay with them. And he stayed. He stayed with them for two days. The Christ, the King, stayed with the worst of these, with the least of these. He stayed with them. And because of his words, many more became believers. And then they said to this woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of our world. So, Brandon, what does that have to do with the church? What does that have to do with vision? What does that have to do with where you think the church needs to go and how we make it relevant? You remember me at the beginning of the message citing that the church seems to be irrelevant in modern-day culture. It seems to just not fill the needs that that it ought to. And again, people think the church is irrelevant, but we've said, and we say many times, the message of Jesus is not. So we've got to figure out how the vehicle, which is the church, has become irrelevant, and we've got to figure out how to make it relevant again, because people need the message of Christ. They need the message of Christ more than they need just about anything else in the world. That means we can't do things the way we've always done them. That means we have to use my football analogy, call a different play. We've got to call a different play and run a different play. The game don't change. The football doesn't change. Quarterback doesn't. None of that changes, but we just got to call a different play. And so it's our vision for this place not to simply be a church. That would be too easy. That would be running the same play again. That would be simple. It's not just to be a church but to be a well for the city. Remember, Jacob's well was where everybody intersected. Everybody came there. And it was when everybody was coming to the well, we're coming to the well, this woman needed water. She showed up and did not realize that she was going to get eternal water. She didn't realize the interaction that she was going to have with the Messiah, with the king. But it wouldn't have been possible had the well not existed. Here's the amazing thing. When, they, when Jacob purchased the well, thousands of years before that, this is going to blow your mind, God had that woman in mind. He knows everything. He's not constricted by time. He knows everything. He had that woman in mind and said, not only am I going to use this to water Israel, because that was Jacob's name, to water and care for Israel and his flocks, but <laughs> my son is going to go there one day, and he's going to change the world, and that's going to be one of the places it starts is at the well. So it's our vision to set up this location as a well instead of it just being another church. Because dream with me for a minute, um, what would it be like if people came to this location and there were all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds? What what would it look like um, if we could get people in this space to have an interaction, a divine interaction with God? What if this just didn't sit as a church that sat empty 
Monday through Saturday, but it was actually used to further the kingdom of God in a tangible way. Well, I mean, what, what would happen? What do you think would happen in society if we were able to do that? What would happen just in this city if we were able to turn this location not just into a church? Look, that woman wasn't going to church. She wasn't going to church. She wasn't going to the temple. She didn't even believe in the right temple. She wasn't going. But because the well was there, she had a divine interaction with Jesus. What would it look like if we were able to do something like that? People from all backgrounds with all different types of issues and shame and problem and dysfunction could find healing at the well. What if, just like the woman at the well, these individuals, they had a divine encounter with Jesus? So the question is, of course, what you're thinking, that's great, Brandon, I'm on board. I know you all are, you're all on board. But how do we do it? What does it even look like? I mean, how do we turn this into something that everybody can use and still do this? Because, I mean, this is important. The gathering of the saints is important. We can't stop doing that. Absolutely not, never. We're going to continue to gather, still going to, nothing changes on Sunday. But what happens next? And that's where we turn it into the well. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to, try, we're going to launch the coffee bar. You guys heard me talk about it last year. That's what we're going to do. We're going to launch the coffee bar. And when we do that, the whole reason we're doing that is because people will go get coffee that will never come in this room. That's right. They will never come in this room. They will never talk to me because I'm the pastor. They are not interested in that. And the minute you say Jesus, they're going to give you the stiff arm. But guess what? They need caffeine. <laughs> By golly, anything short of sin... Come on. So we're, we've already got it built. We built the building that way. So the next thing is going to be to actually start the coffee bar. Because here's the great thing. They're going to come and get their coffee every single day, and they're going to be here every single day. You go, Brandon, what's the point of doing a coffee bar in the church besides us having great espresso on Sunday? They're going to come here, and they're going to be part of it, and they're going to see it. And then this is the best part. They're going to start to build a relationship with the baristas and with the manager here and things like that. And then when that starts to happen... They'll begin to build friendships and relationships. You know this. When you have the opportunity, you go hang out at Starbucks. I know some of y'all. I know. I know. I know some of y'all. They know your Starbucks order by heart. They see your car. They see your car in the drive-thru, and when they see your car, don't look at anybody up here. Eyes up here, okay? Don't look. We don't need condemnation in the house today. But they point, they, they look, and right away they know you, and they know you by name, right? They roll up, and they know you by name. <laughs> they, know, they know you by name. They're interacting with you. And here's the best part. When they come and sit down in a coffee bar, they come and sit down in the coffee bar. When it hits the fan in their life, because y'all know it does, it always does. When it hits the fan and they come in and something's wrong in their countenance, the person behind the bar who's a believer can say, hey, what's going on? And then we're at the well. We're at the well. And Jesus is there. So that's the first thing we're going to do. The second thing we're going to do is expand the building. And many of you are like, yes, I want it bigger. I'm sitting too close to this person. It's okay. <laughs> If you're married to that person, you chose it. <laughs> don't blame the seating team. Anyway, the, we're going to expand the building. And here's the thing. I don't want to just expand to make a bigger, bigger auditorium. 
That would be easy. That's running the same play, okay? Not interested. But what if we expand it and put a bigger auditorium and add more kids' classrooms and add a couple extra things, and then instead of it just being a really big church building, it's actually a child care center Monday through Friday. What would it look like then? Because then it's the same thing. Because then there's kids coming onto the property, kids coming here, and we can work with them and we can teach them and give them a worldview that their heavenly father loves them. And before they ever go into the public school system, they hear you're loved and you're cared about and God is with you and God is for you. And they hear all of that here in the preschool before they ever go on to the next thing. I don't know about you, but I think that's a need in this city today. And then I would love to, and I told you to put your big dream, your dream big hat on. So everybody put your big dream hat on, okay? This is what, we're gonna, this is what I really want to do. I want to purchase the surrounding area around this church building. I want to purchase the area around the building. One, because everybody that lives there doesn't want to see the back of buildings. That's one reason. <laughs> the other reason is honestly because there's so much space available. Guys, we put those basketball court, that basketball rims up. There's kids there every single day. Every single day. What would it look like if we purchased one of these spots and we put an actual basketball court up there? And so they could do that kind of stuff, right? What would it look like if we were to do something like that? I mean, what would it look like if we were able to take one of these surrounding plots and purchase it and then put a Christian counseling center there where people can hear that are going through and we can help veterans with PTSD and people who've been through horrible traumatic experiences and we could help them with someone with a Christian worldview sits across from them and teaches them God loves you. And we're going to work with you. And you're not broken and you're not unacceptable to God and you're not those things. What would it look like? What would it look like for society, for our area, for our city if something like that was to happen? So I know it's a big vision. I know it's a big dream. But I don't know about you, but I serve a big God. The fact that I'm standing here is a miracle in and of itself. And I know that for some of you, you never thought you'd come to church again. But here you are. So, Brandon, what's the vision? What are we trying to do? What's next? The vision is to build the well. We want to build a place where all people can have a meaningful interaction with Jesus. Not just church people. I want church people to have a meaningful interaction with Jesus. Absolutely I do. But I want everybody to have a meaningful interaction with Jesus. And there's people that will never come through those doors because it's a church. They'll drop their kid off because it's a safe, secure location. They'll come get coffee because everybody needs caffeine. Like, there's other ways we can leverage this kingdom space because it's God's, not ours. We can leverage this kingdom space in such a way to reach the world around us on top of the personal invite, on top of the personal evangelism and witnessing. So what would that look like if we were able to do something like that. Here's the action point. This is only possible with you. This is only possible if we do this together. This undertaking is massive. It's big, and I understand vision is big, and I understand that we look at it and we go, that's a big mountain. We're never going to be able to climb it. Yes, we can. But we do it together. And we need a strong foundation 
of people to do that. So, you guys came in and saw the board when you guys came in. If you didn't, you need better situational awareness. The thing's huge. Okay? If you missed it, that's okay. Somebody's like, what are you talking about? I didn't see anything. It's all right. We'll pray for you too. So I say all that to say, when, we, when, we go, when you leave this space here, I want you to, to, if you're not already on a team, I want you to get on a team. And you go, Brandon, I don't have enough time. Look, one Sunday a month, one Sunday a month. I'm not asking you to sit here and build the thing from the ground up. We had those families. We had those people that did that over the last five years that came in every single Sunday and set up every single time and did everything else. Now the game is working all of us together, working together to achieve that vision, to build a place where all people can have a meaningful interaction with Jesus. That's what we want in the next step. So as we close, you're going to have the opportunity to go out and there's little descriptions on the cards and there's broken out into the different teams. You can see the description, you can fill it out. And then this, the out there, there's a well. I want you to place it in the well. I don't want you to put it in the offering box or anywhere else. I want you to fill it out right then and there because if you take it home, you're not going to fill it out. We all know you're not going to fill it out. Come on. <laughs> Come on. It's like taking the thing at the guy at the front door. Yeah, I'll call you about my roof. You ain't calling me. <laughs> Look at it. Decide where you're going to go. Decide what team you're going you're gonna to join. If you're already on a team, don't, don't, don't worry about it. If you're already on a team, thank you so much. We couldn't have done this and gotten this far without you. Absolutely, we couldn't have gotten this far without you. If you're on a team or served on a team or taken a break, now is your chance to join again and hop back on a team and find the place where you fit because God created you for a purpose and we're all here together. And the Apostle Paul equates it to a body, that there's hands, there's eyes, there's ears, and all together it functions in the body of Christ. So when you have the opportunity as we leave, and if you hear God pulling on your heartstrings, don't walk away from it. Because all you're going to do is hurt yourself in the long run. Because it's in community that your life begins to change. Things are great here in Rose, and we love this, and this is amazing. But it's when you're on a team. That's when things start to change. So, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dismiss. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for everything that you've done to get us to this day. Lord, there was a, there was a time when post-COVID we met and there was 30 people counting the kids. And look at what you've done now, Lord. We believe you're not done. We know you're not done. But we know we need to change the play. So, Father, as we pursue this vision for the next five to ten years, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, give us the courage, Lord. If we've been thinking about hopping on a team or we've been possibly, maybe interested in joining one, the Lord, Holy Spirit, you would guide us to the board. You would guide us to that, to that location and show us where exactly you want us to serve. 
Holy Spirit, help us be wise with our time. Let's not crazy overcommit. Let's be realistic. Let's be honest. But Lord, let's not let our schedules dictate whether we're connected to community around the body. So Father, I pray that that vision, that vision of this becoming the well, Lord, I, I pray that you'd give us the power and the strength to do that. Where we can change lives in so many different ways. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And this is all for you. And the church said, Amen. Amen.